At this time, kids are dismissed for kids' church. <coughs> So as we finish up this morning through the story, through the book of Ruth, um, I would love to just spend some time processing. What, What has stood out to you the most? What's one thing through the book of Ruth that as we read, as we talked about, has just something that's maybe been soaking, that you've just been processing or maybe there's something in the book that just hit a chord with you and, and you're just rejoicing in that. And it's just something that really just encouraged you. Or maybe there's something that you read and just frustrated you. So I would love to just hear from you. As we went through this series over these last six weeks, what was an encouragement for you? What else? What else as you process this? What else stood out to you? character to admonish, to strive for, yeah. What else? Anyone else? Well, as we have seen, uh, the book of Ruth started with a, a tragedy. It started with death, um, and, and it started with, Moet, with, with Naomi's journey back to Bethlehem, back to finding joy, back to finding fulfillment. And in the process, Ruth got to experience that as well. She got to experience what it was like to follow the Lord. <clears throat> she got to experience what it was like to be loved 
and cared for by a man who loves the Lord, whose desire was to be obedient to the Lord, to treat his workers and his servants and ultimately Ruth with love and respect and care as a human being should. Um, And then last week we saw uh, Boaz follow through with the Mosaic law, follow through with what God um, called Boaz to do, which was to be obedient to him and follow through. Um, Any man could have just said, you know what, Ruth, yeah, I'm going to marry you. But we saw Boaz honor the, the closer redeemer, and through that, God honored him and blessed him with the opportunity of taking Ruth as his wife. Um, and as we go through this, you know, as we read stories, there's, there's certain things about your life that you reflect on. And uh, one of the things that I want to, I've been reflecting on is even my own family, my wife and my children. And some of you guys, I've hinted at the stories that, um, you know, her dad said no. And it was four years of working and fighting and striving to earn his respect and his care and his love. Um, and after four years, she, his, she, her dad finally said yes. Um, and September uh, 13th of 2014 was our greatest day. And I got to show a picture because it was in this picture that um, not only did I lose it, but I was extremely thankful for where God brought me, thankful for what God provided. But here is a picture of my wedding day. This is the first time that I got to see my wife walk down the aisle. And the photographer caught it. And I was bawling my eyes out because I was just extremely thankful. Right? And I can imagine in this time, I mean, Boaz and Ruth being thankful. And I just saw my wife turn that corner and I just lost it. All the anticipation, all the buildup, all the, the working, the striving for this moment, the reminder that, that it's finally here. And then God blessed it. And it was such an incredible feeling. And I thought my world was complete. I thought, I have a wife. This is great. This is awesome. And then just like we see in the book of Ruth, you have your ups and downs. And after we got married, we moved around a lot. And there was chaos. And when we moved to Wisconsin, it was one of the hardest times of our ministry um, and to the point that, that it actually led me to resign from a church that I was at in Wisconsin. And I thought, man, God, like, what are you doing? I thought life was great. I had a wife, like, good things are happening, and then all these up and downs and these trials and these chaoses. And then 10 days after I stepped down, Chloe was born. And again, right, like, we're freaking out, like, God, what are you doing? And you're worried and, and all these things are happening, and then a child is born, and it's as if the world doesn't mean a thing right now. And in that moment, life is just back to being complete. And you find your center again, and you find who you are, and <clears throat> the world was the limit. And I absolutely loved it. But just like any other <clears throat> crazy man, you're desiring a boy. You're desiring one who is going to be able to continue your last name right? Like, and, and we're going to see that. And, and all these things are happening. And, you know, we, we moved around again a lot. And, and we, we moved here and life was just great and, and all these things. And, and then God's like, hey, I'm not done blessing you, Mike. And then along came Lydia. And again, when I, we had Chloe, I thought my world was complete. I thought I had everything. 
right? And, and, and I still desired a boy. And when Becky told me that it was, we found out it was another girl, at that moment, like, there was a little bit of disappointment, but then God's like, hey, Mike, I'm blessing you with another child, a girl. And we had two girls, and my life was complete. And there was a lot of celebration because those girls have brought us joy. They brought us life. They brought us love. And, and, and I'm so glad that not only do I get to experience how incredible they are, but I'm so thankful that you guys get to see them grow up as well. And you get to see how gracious God is and how much he has blessed us. And I'm glad that I get to not only have a couple grandparents, right? My parents, Becky's parents, but I get to have all of you as grandparents, as adopted uncles and aunts and, and friends, right? And, and, and all this stuff is incredible. But one thing I'm incredible gracious for is your support. Because without the community, right, we, we know that to raise a child, it takes a village. And I'm so grateful that you are our village. I'm so grateful that you get to experience this life with us. <clears throat> and as we finish up the book of Ruth, this is exactly how it celebrates. There's a wedding, and then there's a kid. Then there's a community of supports and a reason to rejoice and be joyful, right? And so as we get started in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. How incredible is that? We start with this, the, the journey at the beginning of death and of Naomi's sons finding Moabite wives. And we were like, what are you doing? What's happening? Like that is sin that is, that is totally going against God. And we've lost sight of who God is. And as we've gone through the book of Ruth, we, we've seen God's provision. We've seen that God can take a Moabite, a Gentile, one whose community is totally against God and use it for his glory. And what we see here at the end is that it's finally, right? Ruth goes from being a, a slave to her own imprisonment, her own world, her own sin, her own gods, to now being free as a wife with Boaz in the Lord. And so Boaz married Ruth. <clears throat> and it says that he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Don't miss this. Up to this point, we have to realize that the 10 years in, in Moab with, with Naomi's sons and they were married and everything leading up to this point, we have to understand that, that Ruth's womb was closed. She could not have children. And because she could have had children, there probably was a sense of worry. Like, could this happen? And look what it says. Don't miss this. The Lord gave her conception. It was the Lord who opened up her womb so that she can have a son. Not just a child, but a son, because a son is significant. A son is going to continue the lineage. A son is going to continue the name. A son is going to continue on with, with God's plan. So she gets married. Ruth goes from being a slave to being a wife now to a mother. And how many of you as moms can remember the first time you became a mother? How incredible was that feeling? To know like, hey, like God has blessed me. And I'm so grateful for this. 
But I also have to realize that some of you maybe have been like Ruth, where you just unfortunately couldn't have a child. Don't lose hope in what God wants to give you. Don't lose hope in how he's provided. And maybe through that, God has provided you abundantly, even if you didn't have your own children. So 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So Ruth has a child. But then we switch to Naomi. How many of you are grandmothers in here? How many of you can experience the joy that Naomi's probably feeling? My first grandchild. I didn't think I was ever going to have any. I thought my life was hopeless. I thought that there was going to be no one to marry my daughter-in-law. And I didn't think I was ever going to have children. How do you think Naomi's feeling? To know that she was never going to possibly have grandchildren. But yet God shows up again and again And so Naomi is there, and it says that the community, the woman around her, the community rejoiced. And listen again to what they said. Blessed be the Lord. Notice it's capitalized. This is Yahweh. This is the providential God. This is the sovereign God that they are celebrating, worshiping, and and blessing. Who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Wait a minute. I thought Boaz was the redeemer. I thought he was going to be the redeemer. But listen what it says. It says, God has blessed you this day. He's not left you without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. This is about the baby. It's the baby who's the redeemer. It's the baby who we're going to see whose lineage leads to the ultimate redeemer, Christ. And they're saying, listen, God has blessed you as a grandmother God has blessed you with one who's going to continue on your son's name. He's not left you. He's not forgotten you. He's given you a redeemer. And they're basically prophesying over this baby. May his name be renowned in Israel. May his name be great. May this son bring so much life and restoration and redemption to the people of Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. How did this story start? It started with death. It started with chaos. It started with agony, and all the way up to this point, maybe there was a little bit of hope coming back, but Naomi was probably still feeling hopeless. There was probably some weight, some heaviness, and they're basically saying that this baby is going to restore your life. This baby is going to take what death caused, and redeem it. This baby is going to restore your happiness and your sense of security and your sense of acceptance and significance. And this baby who was born to Ruth is going to do this. It's not only that, but look how they describe Ruth. For your daughter-in-law who loved you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth goes from a Moabitess, who is totally 
outside the will of God, who was totally living in a, a country that was sinful, that was full of idolatry. And look what God has done to her life. This woman who has given birth to him means more to you than seven sons, Naomi. Seven meaning perfect. Right? The number seven is a sense of perfection. It's a sense of, of fulfillment, of, of longing. And for some of them, seven was significant in families. That was what they desired. That's what some of them strive for. But here in this moment, they're reminding Naomi that your daughter-in-law, Ruth, is more important than any son you could have ever had because he's given birth to your Redeemer, your Restorer of life. Then it says, Naomi took him, 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And so she became his guardian. She took care of him. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. <clears throat> and so we're looking at this and we're like, man, like God has done something significant. But here's the thing that we need to understand. The whole entire, we thought the whole book of Ruth was about Ruth. But if you notice how it started and how it ended, who did it end with and who did it start with? It started with Naomi. So while Ruth was a huge part of this, Naomi was actually at the center of it all. This story points, starts with Naomi, ends with Naomi. Why? Because the line that God has planned, the lineage that God has planned is actually through that lineage and that family. And so Naomi was blessed with a grandchild, with a redeemer, with one who's going to provide hope. But you look at this, and here's what we also need to see. At the end of it, it says that he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait a minute. David hasn't come about yet. Actually, this happened maybe a couple hundred years before David. Who knows? But we look at this, and we're like, wait a minute. What happened? Here's the thing we got to understand. The book of Ruth was actually written after David. And the book of Ruth is pointing to that. But because it signified David here at the end of it, we have to understand that at some point this was actually written after King David. And so let me finish. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And we look at this, and for some of you, you're like, this is boring. What is up with genealogies? It's just names. But for some of you, you look at this and you're like, man, there, there's meaning. There's importance, right? Each and every single one of these were created in the image of God. And so there's a story behind each and every single one of these. But here's the beautiful thing. This is the start of the genealogy that Matthew wrote about in Matthew. And so let's turn to Matthew 1 real quick. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered of Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. And Judah then fathered the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, 
and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconi and his brothers at the time of the deportion to Babylon. And after the portion to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. When you look at this, there's a couple of names that stand out. In verse 5, you see Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who was Rahab? He was a prostitute. And out of Rahab came Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed by who? Ruth. Two women that technically should not have been in the lineage. You look at this and you're like, God, those were people that were totally against you, that were living a life of sin, but yet somehow you used it, you restored it, you redeemed it by allowing them to be part of your lineage. Why? Because God's desire for all of humanity wasn't just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And in the midst of this, God used what was unlikely for his glory. And we can look at this and go, wait a minute, why... Why was Jesus, why was the lineage actually through Judah? Didn't Judah have three other brothers? What actually happened? Well, if you look at Genesis chapter 49, it says this, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to the father's bed that you defiled, and he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence after their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and their willingness, their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the first three brothers were not a part of this blessing that Israel gave, right? And so listen to what it says about Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes were darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. 
So in this point, Israel's blessing in the end, at the end of Genesis, was not for his three first three brothers because they've actually lost, because of their sin and their wickedness, they lost the right. And so who was next in line? Judah. And what does God say about Jesus? Or even King David. Let me, I'm going back because I have these. And he says this about King David in 2 Samuel. Your house and your kingdom should be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. King David came from the line of Judah, and it was David's throne that would last forever. And so what does... This is what Revelation 5.5 says. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no longer. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this is the reason where we get the lineage of Judah. This is the reason, and if you look throughout Scripture, this is saturated through and through, right? Judah, Israel called Judah a lion cub, right? And Jesus is called the lion of Judah. And so this is the reason why we have this lineage, why we have this spectacular, why we have this beauty that we have in this moment is that Judah was actually the one that was blessed. And it says that the scepter will not leave his hand, meaning the reign of rule will not leave him. And as a result, this is what we see. We see the lineage of Judah, which, right, which from Judah came who? Boaz. And Boaz birthed Obed, and Obed Jesse, and Jesse David, and it continues to go on the lineage and the line of of the king, right? But here's the thing, some of the things that we have to remind her about this whole entire story is that God's provision is victorious, his provision is full of grace, and it's life-giving. This story in the book of Ruth, while it's a story in in the Old Testament, and it's real people, real stories, ultimately we have to understand that it's all about God's provision, And God's provision is victorious. God's provision is full of grace, and it's life-giving. He gave Naomi life by giving her a redeemer in Obed, because out of Obed came ultimately Jesus Christ, right? And so we have these moments. So ultimately, we also have to understand that the book of Ruth is symbolic of the cosmic marriage that we have with the Lord. We have to remind ourselves that we were once dead, now alive. We were once enemies of God, and now we're the bride of Christ. And so the book of Ruth shows us and points us to God's ultimate plan of redemption, that he redeems a broken people for his bride. And those who place their faith in Jesus become his bride. The whole church as a whole is his bride, and one day we're going to have an incredible wedding feast. Look in the Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Every story in scripture points to God's relationship with his people. From Israel to the church, it is all about God's redeeming his people And all throughout scripture, he calls us his bride. You look at the book of Hosea and others, right? And God continues to call out his his bride. If you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, you you could see that, that God actually calls his people harlots and prostitutes. Why? Because they continue to cheat on God. 
even in God's grace and his mercy, we somehow still go against God's ordained law. Why? Because God is still mending us. He's still sanctifying us. He's still purifying us. But his blood purchased our freedom from sin so that he can fully do it. And his desire is to make us holy. His desire is to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us pure. And one day, that is exactly going to happen when Christ our King comes back. But in the meantime, what do we do with all the sin and the evil and all the heartache that we see every single day? Well, we have to know this, is that sin and evil will never overcome the Lord and his sovereignty. God's sovereignty will always reign victorious. Even though we see evil, even though we see sin, even though we see all of these things happening and we begin to freak out, like look at this evil, look at these things that are happening and yet we lose fight the fact that God is still in control. I can think about this week, how many of you guys woke up Wednesday morning with your heart aching for our country, for our state, right? How many of you woke up worrying about the life of children not only the life of children, but of moms and of our country and the future, right? And we could sit here and we could look and that was completely evil. That was completely sinful to allow abortion all the way up to nine months. The fact that we even have abortion to begin with is complete evil. But yet God is not shocked by this. We worry, we freak out and God's like, what are you doing? I'm still on the throne, Do you guys remember how the book of Ruth started? In the days of the judges. Look what that last verse in Judges says. In the days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Church, this is happening continually. Those that live in sin are doing what is right in their own eyes. And what do they think is right? My body, my choice. When we look at this, and and, and all the decisions we're seeing are because they want their own right. They want control of their lives. And as a result, there was no king in Israel. God was their king. But because they totally gone against him, even the people of Israel went against him. And as a result, they did not have a king because they did not view the authority of God as what was over them. They did what was right in their own eyes, which means that they took God off the throne and put themselves up. And that's exactly what is happening in our world every single day. And as believers, right, we, 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 we desire a country that focuses and worships at the Lord. But the reality is, is there's never been a full country always that worshiped and served the Lord. Back from the beginning of time, let's go back to Genesis, right? What did Adam and Eve do? They made a decision because they wanted to be like God. And so they put themselves on the throne. This is a continual cycle. But yet God's providence, God's sovereignty, God's victory will never, ever be defeated by the enemy. Look what Jesus says. Can you guys go to the next slide? I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As believers, yes, we want to strive 
We desire to be people, place their faith in Jesus and make choices that reflect that. But in the end, we have to understand that the world has already been overcome. God is still up to his grander scheme and his will is still going to be fulfilled. And because of that, we need to understand this, that Jesus... We're controlling it both ways, huh? Go to the next slide. Jesus is victorious over death and brings full life. You look at the story, it started with death, which represents everything in the world, even ourselves. We were born dead. We were born separated from God. But in God's plan, God's will, God's abundant grace, he has taken the story from death to life. And our lives, for those that believe in Jesus, start with death, but they end with life. God is victorious. That's what the whole redeemer mentality and the whole thing is about, is that Ruth ultimately points to Christ as our redeemer. That started thousands of years ago. The beautiful lineage of Christ, the the providential lineage that Christ came from was all ordained by God. And here's the thing we got to understand. God allows sin for his glory. He's allowed these things to happen so that in the end, he is still going to get the praise. Think about all life from the beginning with Adam and Eve, and you can continue on, right? Tabor, Babel, right? Noah's Ark, all these things that are happening, even to the point of people of Israel where they, they declared that they didn't have a king. And, and if you continue on it for Samuel, right? This, this goal, this desire to have a king because they don't think they have one, which is Christ, right? And God allowed it because they did not view God as the king. And so what did God do? God allowed Saul. And he was great for a little while, but what happened? He got hot-headed. He got prideful. He led to sin. And this is ever cycle of kings who love God, kings who go against God, leaders who love God, leaders who go against it. But here's the thing that never changes God, right? His grip is still on life, right? He is still sovereign. He is still omnipotent. He is still omnipresent. He is still all-knowing. All these things, God is still present, all of this happening. And he allows it because David told his brothers, right, what well, you guys meant for evil, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. So through this, God is going to allow the things of this world to actually, in the end, bring his name glory because he's going to show them ultimately who has the greater power. That's why God allowed the enemy over Job. God allows these things because in the end, he wants to show the world that he is still king, right? And so he is victorious. Look at 1 Corinthians. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come past the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Jesus Christ. Death is ultimately defeated because of Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross for us. Don't lose hope. When you see all the sin in the world, when you see the law of the land change to where you're not supportive of it, don't freak out. Don't lose hope. Trust in a sovereign God. That law means nothing to the power of God. God can still make a way out of that. God could still bring about his glory. He could still use his bride, his church. And those laws actually just make it that there's still more work to be done and he's called us to proclaim the good news of Jesus around the world, in our own communities. 
Because ultimately, you got to understand that laws of the land don't change people. Church, who does? Jesus, the gospel. The gospel is what changes people's lives and hearts. Matter of fact, when we make laws that go against sin, we're only putting a Band-Aid on the actual serious issue at heart. And that's the human nature. It's in Christ that they find freedom ultimately from that. Because ultimately this, our souls are longing for acceptance, significance, and security. And they can only be found when we experience the deep and incredible love of Christ. Look, our souls are longing to be accepted, to be significant, to find security. And when people run to sin and they run to all these things, they're trying to find worth, their own self-worth in those things, which is why people are finding their self-worth in abortion, which is why they're finding it in all these extra things that cannot ultimately satisfy themselves because they're longing for it. In the end, our souls can only be satisfied with the love of Christ. Nothing else. That is exactly why the church exists, to proclaim his name and his love to a world that is hurting, that is longing for something to fulfill their own self-worth. And when we find our self-worth in Christ, that's when we find our ultimate meaning. Because it's in Christ that he's accepted us. He's called us beloved. It's in Christ that we find our ultimate significance and our ultimate meaning as to why we exist. And it's in Christ that we are secure by his Holy Spirit till the end. And so we have to understand these things. You can see it in, in Romans 5 about God's love and the victory we have, right? Look at John 10.10, right? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And where do we see that even deeper? John 6, talking about the bread of life, right? Christ satisfies our deepest longings. Look what Paul David Tripp says. You will never find fulfillment of heart on the far side of rebellion. True rest of heart is always found in submission to the Savior. When we submit to the love of Christ and the authority of Christ, that is where we find ultimate satisfaction, ultimate life, ultimate redemption, ultimate fulfillment. And so what does this mean for us? At the end of the story, we saw that Naomi cared and led and took care of Obed. Here's my, here's my challenge to you as parents and as grandparents. You have a high calling to point your children towards Jesus. Your ultimate responsibility is your family. Not really the neighborhood kid down the street that drives you insane. It is your kids. And when you lead your kids well... And you point them to Jesus, you are discipling and making children who are going to go and profess Jesus to their friends and to their neighbors and to their community. Your ultimate calling is to your family and then to your community, right? So parents, you have it. Listen to Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You also teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Lord is your God, parents and grandparents, and is your calling to talk about him with your children. Point your children to Jesus. We cannot change the world by trying to drastically change a country. You change the world one person at a time. 
and become disciple makers to those that are around you and encourage them to go and make disciples. And they make disciples and they make disciples. Our calling to know Christ, grow in Christ, and help others to do the same starts with your own family, with your own children, with your own grandchildren. That's why God calls your grandchildren jewels. Grandparents, you are needed and wanted and have a high calling. Parents, you have a high calling by God to point their, your kids to Jesus. Look what Paul said to Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. The lineage of Christ. All these things that are happening are filled with parents and grandparents who love the Lord and desire to be obedient to Christ. And that is your calling as well. Are you willing to stand upon the promises of God, continue to celebrate and worship his sovereignty and his providential plan? Are you willing to lead your children and your grandchildren towards Christ every single day, every moment of every day? You have a calling, just like Naomi and Ruth had callings, you have a calling like Boaz to represent Christ and all you do and say, it starts with us. Are we living for the Lord? Do we love Christ? Are we going deeper in love with Christ? And out of that, does it flow the love for each other and for the world? I'm gonna invite Chris to come on up and lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, let's pray as we reflect on, on the message this morning.